Welcome to Success the Last, a podcast that honestly explores the complicated topic of success. I'm your host, Jared Siegel. I'm a partner at DeLap and leader of our wealth advisory practice. During each episode, we're going to talk to a business owner, entrepreneur, real estate investor, or industry thought leader about their own experiences, insights, and observations as it pertains to life, business, finances, and ultimately fulfillment. Candidly, it can be lonely at the top. Our desire is to use this podcast to connect you with the ideas and resources so you can be better equipped to make more predictable, profitable, and rewarding decisions as you juggle the competing priorities of life, business, and money. Keep in mind, this is a podcast. It's not meant to be a replacement for your CPA or financial advisor, so be sure to check with the appropriate professionals before implementing any of the ideas. All right. Well, welcome back to another episode of Success That Lasts. I'm extremely excited for today's episode with Dan Solon. Dan is a New York Times bestselling author of the Smartest series, a bunch of investing books that he'll talk to us a little bit about. He's a coach, consultant, and business owner. And so we'll unpack kind of his career trajectory and also his most recent book, Ask. So without further ado, let's welcome Dan Solon to the podcast. Dan, welcome. Thank you, Jared. Great pleasure to be with you. Thanks so much for having me. Awesome. Hey, so before we jump into kind of the the greater topics of the day, I thought I would start with one that is of great interest, I think, to people right now as they start 2021. It's this idea of financial forecasts, economic forecasts. And we'll talk about your book, Ask, here momentarily, but your first six or seven books were all on investments. And so you yourself were a financial advisor before getting into what you know, writing books and coaching today. But talk to me a little bit about your approach to thinking about markets, these forecasts, and all these invitations that we're getting to go hear chief economists and market forecasters. So I have a, a view that's contrarian when compared to like most of what you hear out there, but very consistent with what evidence-based advisors like you espouse. And I just view 95%, that's an arbitrary number, of the financial media as misleading noise. And I believe people would be far better off if they just ignored it and paid no attention to it. Obviously, if anybody had the ability to predict the future of the market, the last thing they'd want to do is share it with the public. So I think it's just unfortunate that there's so much misinformation out there and it drowns out sound academically based information about the only, in my view, intelligent and responsible way to invest. It is an uh, interesting thing. I just recently read a book by Morgan Housel, The Psychology of Money, and he, he said something that's super true. He said, uh, pessimism always sounds smart. You know, so when you're scrolling through your headline and all of a sudden there's some some pronouncement of pending doom, some huge correction, or reason why this next stimulus might not work, or whatever. It always sounds smart. And I, I thought that was an insightful observation that pessimism always sounds smart. Saying that global capitalism works, money will move to where it's treated best and stay the game, you know, take the long game, sounds Pollyanna at, at times. So I'm a big fan of Morgan Housel. I think his latest book is his best book, and I highly recommend it to everybody. I think it's actually more insidious than that. I think that the financial media actually understands a lot about a field that I've studied extensively, 
neuroscience, and they understand that negative news sells, fear and greed sell. So their goal is eyeballs, whether it's on the TV set or on a magazine or whatever. They know the way to do that is to instill fear. So they are oriented towards alarmist news, which does cause people great anxiety and does, I guess the only way to say it is, the worst thing, as you know, for investors is activity. Activity equals higher costs, higher costs equals lower expected returns. So what the financial news does with all of this kind of stirring the pot has people kind of come in and come out of the markets, running up trading costs. They usually get out at the wrong time. They get in at the wrong time. And it's just a disaster for the American investing public. Awesome. Dan, thanks for sharing that. I couldn't agree more, which is why one of the reasons I wanted to ask you about it. So let's kind of transition the conversation to the most recent book, Ask. So the research that preceded the book itself, you've shared with people in North America, Europe, and Australia. That's actually how you and I met. You know, you were sharing some of this information, and then we hired you to share it more intimately with our team on a one-on-one -on -one basis. And so I think it's a unique way of looking at things. So I wanted to frame today's conversation around kind of Abraham Maslow's 1943 paper around the theory of human motivation. So it's really not about manipulation of people, but it's really about addressing our own psychological needs, helping us address others' psychological needs, as well as kind of the, our ultimate aspiration of self-fulfillment. You know, in order for us to achieve our full potential, we're going to have to be positively influential within our communities and the key relationships in our life. That's kind of seems to be the premise of the book. So I guess with that being the framework, talk to me a little bit about the premise, the original premise for the book, Ask. So there's a Harvard study, it was an 80-year study, and it tried to determine what makes some people happy. What factors are there that positively impact our happiness? And you know, if you step back and look at life, you say, okay, well, one of my primary goals should be to be happy. I mean, it doesn't make any sense to engage in other activities if the end result is high levels of anxiety and unhappiness. So what this study found, I'll just give you the bottom line, it found that people who have meaningful relationships in their life are happier than people who don't. And it goes into great detail on why that's the case and it makes a compelling case. So when I looked at that study, I thought, okay, well, I wonder how you get there. I mean, how do you have, what is a meaningful relationship? And what can we do to make relationships more meaningful? And that was the premise for writing Ask. So what I think is really interesting right now is the world feels like everyone's got a microphone like you and I do today. Yes. <laughs> so it's become a lot noisier and everyone's sharing opinions. And so everyone's got something to say, but very few people listen. And so I think that's why it's, it's a very potent message as we enter 2021. I was thinking the other day as I listened to one of my kids ask a question in the kitchen in front of our Amazon Alexa, that to some extent, Siri, Alexa, Google, kind of artificial intelligence, the explosion of information, answers have been somewhat commoditized. And it's the capacity to ask interesting, original and authentic questions that might be what differentiates us going forward. So talk to me a little bit about kind of what 
truths you were able to research because the book is well researched. Most self self help books aren't. It's just opinions stated authoritatively. Talk to me a little bit about the research and conclusions that you observed in the book or in the process of writing the book. So let's start with the research. My view is, and I'm not being immodest here, but I don't really think my opinion is worth very much. I mean, I think things are either, as you know, Jared, being an evidence-based advisor, your investment philosophy is not premised on your opinion. It's premised on extensive research in well-respected peer-reviewed journals. And my discipline as a former lawyer and as a wealth advisor taught me to pay a lot of attention to research. So my story is, in a nutshell, when I was an advisor, I was also writing the investment books that you alluded to. Two of them made the New York Times bestseller list. And as a consequence, unlike my colleagues, I was getting a lot of warm leads of people who've read my books would call me and would say, you know, would you be willing to talk to me about managing my money? And yet I found that my conversion rate was no better than theirs, and I had a tremendous advantage. And so that kind of started me on this journal of self-discovery, which was a combination of how can I be better at sales? But then it was to examine the premise of my own relationships, meaning if I were to meet you socially, I never thought about what control I had over who goes first, who says what, what might resonate with you, what might not resonate with you. And all of those things together made me think, I wonder if there's research that actually could show a scientific basis for deepening relationships. And it turns out that in the fields of psychology and neuroscience, there are hundreds and hundreds of studies And I was stunned by the results. And that's kind of the backstory. An earlier guest on the podcast is somebody that you know, because she went ahead and endorsed your book, Moira Summers. So she's a clinical psychologist and author of of her own book, Advice That Sticks. So she endorsed it. You referenced psychology in neuroscience. I guess, what specifically did you observe in, in these studies? And then I guess, to what extent, as you began to experiment with these observable insights, what was your your firsthand experience with it? So first, I'm a big fan of Moira and her book. So thanks for mentioning her. I think she her book is wonderful. Well, she thought highly of yours as well. Yeah, good. I felt stupid, honestly, Jared, as I was doing the research, because it seemed like everything I was doing, which was kind of what I thought most people were doing to try in my interactions with others, was contraindicated by the research, meaning most people like you and me, we have asymmetric knowledge. People come to us because they want to know what we know. And so I felt, okay, well, they must be interested in what I have to say. And the research, the shocking part of the research was that that is just what I call a sacred belief that isn't really true. It's not borne out by the evidence. People are generally not interested in what we have to say. They are interested in a business context of what is it we can do to solve their problem. Well, if you accept that, and now I'm talking business, not social, but if you accept that, how do you find out what their problem is? 
or what's on their mind unless you ask them. So I was of the school that because I was an evidence-based advisor like you, and very few when I was doing it, relatively few advisors were, that I had to explain what I did, explain why I did it, explain why passive is better than active, and basically do a whole educational thing. And what I found was that was the exact wrong way to approach the business situation if my goal was to convert those people from prospects into clients, that the right way was to elicit information and not to convey information. So on the business side, that's what I learned. On the personal side, what I learned was basically the more I talk, the less effective I am going to be in deepening a relationship, that I had had to reorient my thinking in both business and personal situations from conveying information to eliciting it. I had to learn to be much more curious about other people, much more interested in other people. I have this line that instead of trying to be the most interesting person, you should try to be, or I should try to be the most interested So a combination of being the most interested person, the most curious person, and putting our agenda aside, that is the bottom line of my research. So when you and I first met and you started to actually coach me and and others on my team, you talked about oxytocin and you talked about dopamine, you talked about MRIs. Why don't we unpack a little bit of that again, just to talk about the biology or physiology of, of how the body responds to some of these insights in action. Yeah, this was, to me, was kind of the epiphany, the aha moment that every author gets, I guess, when they're writing a book. But I came across this Harvard, another Harvard study unrelated to the first one. They took 190 participants, asked them to bring a friend or relative with them, and then told the participants to leave the friend and relative in the waiting area to take a smartphone, go into a cubicle, be hooked up to a functional MRI. A functional MRI measures brain activity in real time. So what a functional MRI will show is what part of your brain is reacting to whatever's going on around you. And neuroscientists can look at them and say, oh, that's the pleasure part of the brain. That's the pain part of the brain. That's the brain that experiences other other feelings. So they've got them hooked up. And they just say to them, just talk about yourself. And what the research showed was when they stopped and they looked at the MRIs, they saw that the act of talking about yourself was one of the most highly pleasurable activities that humans can engage in, comparable to sex, addicted drugs, gambling, Whatever people find extremely pleasure in their, uh, in their life, this was indistinguishable, just talking about yourself. And they theorized that that's because hormone called dopamine, which is that feeling you get when you've accomplished something, like you've run a marathon or you had a goal, or possibly oxytocin, which is known colloquially as the love hormone. But these are two hormones that make you feel really good. And the, the, the psychology professors at Harvard who did this study, they theorized that talking about yourself released those hormones into the prefrontal cortex of the brain, flooding you with these positive feelings that were then showing on the functional MRI. They then did a quick follow-up 
and they said to the to people, the same people, we're going to have you talk about yourself, but we want you to know we're going to share the results with a friend or family member you brought with you. And they found that that caused the prefrontal cortex to light up even more, meaning, oh, when we're talking about ourselves and other people are present, that's off the chart for human pleasure. So I looked at that study and I kind of connected the dots because I had read hundreds of studies at that point. And I said, I wonder what would happen if in every interaction, instead of me talking, I just encourage people to talk about themselves in a genuine, non-manipulative way, which is fairly easy for me because I am curious. But my curiosity never trumped my kind of compulsion I had to talk. So now I shifted and I spent a year after I pulled all this research together and just to give put a metric on it, in the five years prior to writing the book, I had generated $55 million of assets under management. In the year after implementing my research, I generated $100 million of assets under management. And all I did was ask questions and answered questions, but only when they were asked. So the focus of the study and the reason this research implementation of it has such a major impact is, as you pointed out, Jared, this isn't me theorizing, it's science. It's as scientific as tossing a match into kerosene, there's going to be a fire. If you empower people in any context to talk about themselves, they are going to like you, they are likely going to trust you, In a business context, they are much more likely to hire you. In a personal context, they are far more likely to regard you as a unique, special person. So I agree with you. I kind of want to unpack that because it it almost sounds too simple. Yeah. To be inquisitive and you all of a sudden can have, have more influence. Yeah. And so at a surface level, it translates into... A lot of different things like professionally, it, it might translate into a higher conversion rate or greater, greater sales growth. But I guess if we, again, reframe it through the Maslow's hierarchy of need, if you're doing what's right for the client, it also at the end of the day is also expanding your impact to positively transform lives and positively impact your community and create more jobs within your own organization. So it's the spirit of what you're talking about is, is really about expanding your impact versus just kind of using science to manipulate people. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that the research is also very clear on is that people have a keen sense when they're being sold or manipulated. So one of my rules is, and it comes from another series of studies, is that in a business context, you can't persuade. So people who follow my rules know that one thing they can't do is sell. They can't say, this is why it's better, this sign here, whatever it is. And that's because when people sense they're being sold, cortisol, which is the stress hormone measured in saliva and blood, goes way up. So it creates stress. People feel, oh, I'm being sold. It's very stressful. There also are a series of incredibly interesting studies that show how sensitive people are when you have a self-interest and when you're being manipulative. So I'll just share with you one study. They gave the same script to two groups of participants. The scripts were soliciting donations, charitable donations. With one group, they said, you're going to get 10% of whatever you solicit plus an hourly fee. 
with the other group, they said, you're just going to get an hourly fee. So it doesn't, we don't care. You know, your compensation is not affected by the amount of donations you're successful in generating. Consistently, the participants who had no self-interest raised more money than the participants who were getting a cut of the proceeds, even though the script was the same. And they theorized that people could tell by the tone of their voice that they had an interest. So everything in my book, and I emphasize it throughout the book, is this is not a parlor trick. If you're not authentic and sincere in your level of interest in other people, you will not be effective in reaping the rewards of implementing the research. One of the things that I've observed in, in these fascinating conversations that I get to have here on the podcast is recurring themes that are often almost a dichotomy of one another. So kind of structure and purpose, purposefulness with the value of open-endedness, agendas, having an agenda for a meeting. And then, you know, the table group talked to us about the need for having no agendas, showing up to a meeting and making the agenda as the meeting was occurring prescription, a prescriptive discovery process versus a facilitated discovery process. And so you talk to us about conveying information versus eliciting information. And so that's elegantly stated, but I think there's a lot of depth to that. So I guess, what does that look like in practice? If, if I'm sitting down with you, you know, one of the businesses that you have is around websites and digital marketing. So how does that play out in your own life as somebody that would potentially be a buyer of your service as a, as a business owner? If I pick up the phone and I call you and I want to know more about that business that you own, how do these truths play out in that conversation? So one of the things that I found, even though I live and breathe this research every day, there's a reversion to the mean, meaning like I have right after this podcast, a call with a new prospect. And before I get on any call, I have to remind myself that my goal in the call is to elicit information, not to make, I have as a kind of a metric, I will not make a declarative sentence. Every sentence I utter will be a question mark unless I'm asked a question, which case I'll answer the question. And then I will say, I'll turn it back to another question. Did I answer your question or would you like more information? Usually nobody wants more information. Then the conversation stalls. I'll say, would you like to talk? Is there anything else you'd like to talk about? And if there's nothing else, then I end it. I end the call by saying, how would you like to proceed? So that's the way I handle every prospect. When it gets to your business, there's a big difference between before they sign up and after they sign up. Before they sign up, following what that outline that I just gave you will likely result in more conversions. After they sign up, there is a certain amount that you have to do in order to satisfy the know your customer rule and to do an investment policy statement. You have to do some discovery. Instead of starting a meeting by saying with an agenda, by saying, oh, we're gonna start, we're gonna do extensive discovery, you would still start a meeting by saying, how can I make this meeting as productive as possible for you? And then sooner or later, you would say, you know, there is some information that I need to get from you in order to like prepare recommendations for investment. Is this a good time for you to do that? 
or would you like to do it another time? Would you prefer that I sent you something in writing? And note that in all the examples I'm giving you, you're turning control over to the other person rather than dictating a process that you have that they must follow. That is uh, unconventional. You know, I think there's a lot of training that that we've received where we show up with with an agenda. And so when I started to attempt to implement some of these insights that, that we've talked about today, what I've discovered is my ability to uncover new, new potential issues, new potential planning opportunities, new concerns is expanded because there's margin. There's margin in our time together to talk about what's most meaningful to them. So yeah, it's somewhat uncomfortable, I think, to show up to a meeting and ask them, what, what would you like to talk about? Because I guess there's a, an expectation that there would be a plan for the time. And there is kind of, but we're also creating, I guess, intentionality around preserving margin so we can talk about what's most important to them. So good point. So that gives me an opportunity to make something clear. What's called the ask process in my book isn't about imposing anything on someone. So if the other person, if you said to somebody in what you thought was going to be a discovery meeting, you know, what would you like to talk about? And they said, and this has happened, well, I'm here because you wanted me to be here. And I thought that you were prepared to, to with an agenda. That's fine. You would then say, no, I am prepared with an agenda. I'm ha- would, would you like me to go through my agenda or do you have anything else you'd like to talk about? So we're not trying to impose on the other person like the ask agenda. We're just trying to find out their agenda. And without using agenda too much, their agenda may be for you to use your agenda, in which case you're fine with that. Dan, I guess if I were to get to hang out with you outside of a work environment, to what extent does this permeate your personal life as well? So I am an introvert and everybody, all of us are on a spectrum, right? We're Most people are not at one extreme, extreme introvert or extreme extrovert. I put myself kind of on the middle, say if extreme is 10, I'm a six, which means social situations are not my strength, like parties, making small talk. These are not activities I enjoy. So the way this has changed my life is when I meet people, Instead of feeling pressure to impress them, assuming I could, with how dazzling I am or charming or witty or knowledgeable. Which you are all of those, Dan. I'm none of those. (laughs) (laughs) So instead of trying to do that, all I have to do is say, so, Jared, what do you do? And then you will find that I can literally see dopamine and oxytocin flowing into the prefrontal cortex of your brain as weird as that sounds. And then when you tell me, since I have no agenda, now I learn that you're an advisor in Portland, in the Portland area, right? And I want to know more about that. What's that like? And you're actually outside of Portland. So what's it like being in Lake Oswego? Is that, that's where you are, I think, right? Yep. Yeah. Good memory. So, you know, I have a hundred questions I'd like to ask you. And that did two things. One, reduce my social anxiety to zero. Now I actually enjoy meeting new people because I know all I'm going to do is ask some questions and I know they're going to really enjoy answering them. 
But the second thing that has had a, a great personal impact on me is how many times I will have what could only be called a one-sided conversation where I ask a lot of questions, get a lot of answers in a social situation. The other person never asks any questions, which you have to be prepared for if you're implementing my research. And there are good reasons for that. And then I get the loveliest emails from people saying, what a meaningful conversation it was, how much they enjoyed our conversation, even though we didn't really have a conversation, which just validates how powerful this research is. It's had a tremendously transformational impact on me personally. So Dan, one of the things that, that you'll talk about is pivoting, right? They'll ask a question and rather than just kind of monologue about yourself, pivoting back to them. What's the balance, I guess, in a conversation if, if you're desirous of true intimacy with somebody, but attempting to, to say as little as you can to elicit a, as much information from them, what's the balance in terms of, of eliciting information and pivoting the conversation back to other people versus sharing authentically with who you are? So it's not a mathematical formula, right? So I can't say, oh, it's 60-40. But if you just trust this process, you'll find that when you implement it, there will be a natural flow. With most people, they will enjoy answering questions so much that as I indicated, they're not gonna show a lot of curiosity about you. Some people will, in which case they will ask you a question. And that gives you an opportunity to briefly talk about yourself and before you pivot back to them. But again, what you're gonna find is that it is not reciprocal and you will find, I find if I had to give a percentage, it's like 90% of the time the other person is talking about themselves and 10% of the time I'm talking, which is fine because introverts don't like to talk about themselves. So I'm perfectly fine with that. <laughs> I think you're also pretty good at, at implementing your own research. Well, I guess that, that brings up a good point then. So let's say that I go to Amazon and I buy your book. I read it. I like it. What's the most important thing to do next? Like, what, How could I start to implement some of these truths in my life, personally and professionally, today? So here are some tips. I mean, you're going to reprogram your brain from, as I say, conveying information to asking questions. So I'm always thinking about what question can I ask? And in almost any situation, I find that there's a question I could actually ask. And then I'm thinking, instead of letting the other person like make a statement that just goes unanswered, I do try to say, well, you know, I'm curious about that. What was that experience like? How did that, did that experience change you? Would you do it again? If the new goal is to be curious and interested, that's fairly easy when you get that into your head because other people are interesting. And in fact, we're not very interesting because we know everything that we're saying. So we're not learning anything by talking, but I'm going to learn a lot by focusing on somebody else. So it's this whole concept of asking questions, listening carefully, asking follow-up questions, and just seeing where that goes. So humans are notoriously terrible at actually listening. We have our, our ideas are running in our head and we're half present in a conversation. I guess any insights to how do we listen more effectively? be truly so, present in that conversation, especially right. in a professional setting. 
So what you described is called competitive listening, which means we make it appear like we're listening, but we're really just formulating our response. So the, the way I do it is, like in this dialogue that you and I are having, I come to all relationships with no agenda. If you have no agenda, like I'm not trying to do anything here except answer your questions, right? So if you have no agenda, now I don't have to engage in competitive listening because there is nothing I'm selling there. I'm not trying to, to move the conversation from where you want it to where I want it. So I approach every interaction that way. I'm just genuinely interested in what you have to say. I'm curious if this insight, we've talked about it within the realm of financial advisory work, but prior to being a financial advisor, you were an attorney. You know, Roughly a third of all jobs, I believe, are kind of professional service jobs. So there's going to be a lot of listeners that are in kind of the knowledge economy. As an attorney, as you think back to those experiences where you were paid a meaningful hourly rate for your expertise, what role does ASK play in that sort of an environment where people are paying you a high rate for your expertise and being able to kind of demonstrate that expertise to warrant the compensation or the fee that you're charging? So all relationships are emotional to begin with, right? We react emotionally and we make decisions emotionally. So part of being a, an attorney, just like part of being an investment advisor, is converting prospects into clients. Attorneys are interviewed for cases. How do you then become the one that they're going to pick? I wish I had known this research when I was an attorney. I would have had a much better conversion rate. So doing everything I've just said would, would certainly help bring in more business. But I also think that as an attorney, especially as a trial lawyer, which I was, I mean, I'm trained to ask questions, right? That's what you do. A witness takes a stand and you ask questions. So it was fairly easy for me to make the switch. I have underestimated how difficult, it, I don't know if it's difficult, but a combination of how difficult it is for some advisors to ask questions. And secondly, how difficult it's been to convince them to give up the microphone and hand it to somebody else. That seems to be kind of a leap that many advisors find challenging. Yeah, sometimes you don't know how to purchase services from something. So I think sometimes in an interview setting, when you're interviewing an attorney or you're interviewing an architect or you're interviewing a financial advisor or CPA, people kind of ask these questions that might bait you into the microphone moment, you know? How are you better than firm ABC? They don't maybe know a different, more insightful question to ask, but it's easy to kind of get baited into that microphone moment where you jump into your long monologue. You know, when you're asked a question, the first thing I tell people to do is be sure that you understand the question and the context. So a question, that quite, let's take that question. How are you better than A, B, and C? My reaction to that would be, what do you mean by by better. I mean, that encompasses a lot. Like, are we less expensive? Is it a fee issue? Is it how responsive we are? Is it our depth of services? Can you give me a little context so that I really understand your question? Usually when we're asked a question, we have a Pavlovian reaction, which is, oh, we're going to answer the question. 
But a lot of the time, we don't really know what they're asking. Like in, in your world, people are asking about risk. Then they'll say to you, I'm very concerned with the geopolitical situation, with all the craziness going on, very concerned about risk. And then very few advisors will ask a question like, tell me more about that concern. Like, where does that come from? What does that mean? What would be helpful? What would you find helpful for me to respond to? Like, what information can I give you that you'd find helpful? When you start doing it, it's very easy, but... Well, again, it sounds easy. Our instinct, at least my instinct, is it reminds me of that game I used to play at Chuck E. Cheese when the gophers would pop up and you'd, you'd whack them. You get an objection, you get a concern, and you just want to whack as many gophers as you can in the meeting right. and score points, get tickets, and win a fun prize at the end of the evening, oh, you know? That's a great point. Think about this phrase, you know, tell me more about that. Tell me more about that concern. I'd like to, I'd really be interested in hearing more about that concern. And, you know, the way I illustrate this, Jared, is I, when I'm talking to large groups, I say, raise your hand if anybody has ever shown a genuine interest in you. Like they, you've said something really interesting. You went on a great trip. They looked, stopped, they looked at you and they said, tell me more about that. Very few hands go up. Yeah. I think again, listening and courageous original questions, I think is a differentiator in a rather noisy world today. Well, Dan, in the, in the few minutes that we have left in our conversation today, I wanted to be curious about you. So I did a little show prep here. Your law degree from an Ivy League law school 50 plus years ago. So uh, presumably you and your wife could, quote, retire in the traditional sense, kind of the, the sandy beach and the hammocks. But you've chosen to continue to coach, write, and grow businesses. As a financial advisor in your past career, I'm curious now that you're in this season of life that others would call retirement, you're experiencing it different than a lot of the uh, commercials, you know, in between NFL halftimes. Talk to me about how you would talk to, to Dan Solon 20 years ago as a financial advisor of the season that you're in right now in how you would have talked to your clients in that moment in time. So let me say, Jared, that's a particularly great question. And unfortunately, 20 years ago, I was clueless, and I'm sure I would have handled it completely wrong. But the way I would do it, knowing the research, is one of the worst things you can do to deepen a relationship, if you, if you want to have a deeper relationship, one of the worst things you can do is make assumptions. So an assumption that many advisors have is that everybody would like to like retire in a traditional way, meaning stop all work and just kind of hang around, play golf, go fly fishing in your case. Yeah, yeah. There'll be some of that when I, quote, retire. Right. And so the way I would handle that, if I was the client, the way the Dan Solon advisor would say, so Dan, what is your ideal retirement? Like, what does that look like to you? And if I was asked that question, I would say, I have no interest in not being intellectually stimulated until the time comes when I can no longer do what I'm doing, then I have no choice. But to me, the ideal retirement is to be productive, active, to be dealing with people like you, who I really respect, who are doing right for their clients, who are making a positive contribution. This makes me feel good every day. Why would I not do this. It doesn't feel like work to me. So it's, again, asking questions would elicit all of that. And then the, the Dan Solon advisor could say, okay, well, we may not need to save as much money for you 
in retirement, maybe you could spend more money on like you enjoy travel and all that. Maybe you would spend more money because you'll probably be earning money, you know, long after many people have actually retired. So Dan, let's unpack that a little bit more. So it sounds like you've also recently read Morgan Housel's book. One of the things that he acknowledges at the end of the book is that we're terrible forecasters of our future self. You know, you just said 20 years ago, you had a different perspective of the world than you do today. And so it's easy for us to see the changes that that have occurred in our own life when we look out the rearview mirror. But it's very difficult for us to forecast changes in personalities, desires, and wants as we envision the future. So we just transpose our current wants, wishes, and desires into the future when that's often different. So I guess, did you have clarity of what you wanted retirement to look like 20 years ago versus where you're at today? So Has that evolved or has it always been constant? It's been fairly constant that a traditional retirement was never appealing to me, that I really enjoyed my, I enjoyed working as a lawyer. I enjoyed working as a financial advisor. I really enjoy writing books and blogs. I knew those were activities that aren't age dependent as long as I'm in good shape. So what did change was an increased awareness of what we can call self-care or wellness, right? It became very obvious to me that there were some things I could do to prolong my physical and mental state that I didn't feel I was doing a good enough job of educating myself about. And primarily that was diet and exercise. So as I got older, I really started to focus on those activities and really got into those in a big way. And I did that because I want to do this for as long as I possibly can. So that's what changed. And I could continue our conversations, but shoot for a predictable timeline on, on these podcasts. I guess for the listeners that want to learn more, right, who encountered some ideas that they want to further discover, where would they track down some of this information that we've discussed today? So I have a website for the book. It's called askdansolon.com. The book's available on Amazon, but you have to type in, start typing the subtitle. It's Ask How to Relate to Anyone. So I think the, the website and the book really is, has all the information in it that we've talked about today. Awesome. So Dan Solon, S-O-L-I-N. Hey, Dan, thanks so much for being curious on this topic, but more importantly, your generosity in sharing it with us today. Thanks, Jared. I really enjoyed every minute of it.